Hey, welcome to the Night Church Podcast. My name is Philip, and I am so excited for what you're about to listen to. These are sermons and presentations by young adults and for young adults. If you're visiting in the area, we hope that you join us for Night Church on Friday nights. Or if you're a regular here in Loma Linda, I hope that you'll share this sermon with someone that you love and care about. Now, for the sermon. Yes, as Kels mentioned, my name is Ezrika Bennett, and it's an honor uh, to be here with you guys tonight um, to, I guess, share some of the things I've learned in my life and how they've just really had an impact on my faith and my relationship with God. Um, so in college, I was a part of an organization called NAPS, the National Association for the Prevention of Starvation. And in this group, we would like travel to different states and countries and do various types of mission work. Um, I was in a marching band, so I used to play like the snares and like the tom drum. I, I, as a person, do a lot of random things, if you ever like get to know me. So there was a particular day we were in New York, which is actually where I grew up. Um, after my family moved from Jamaica, we went to New York. Um, and so the organization, we were in New York, and if you know anything about like the city, people aren't always friendly, right? People aren't always kind. And that day, I was playing the snare drum in the marching band. And what the rest of the team uh, was doing, they were passing out, like, pamphlets. How many of you guys have heard of the Great Controversy or, like, Peace Above the Storm? So there was a, I, we, were, we were playing the drum. We were getting donations because I believe that summer we were going to, like, Malawi, Africa. And so we were getting donations to fund that mission trip. And um, we were also just giving out those books to whomever needed it. So back in the day, I was a, I, I'm still an extrovert, but I was a huge extrovert then. I could not go too long without talking to people. So because I was in the, uh, the, the marching band and wasn't able to talk to anyone for hours, when the team decided to rest, I was like, now is my time to shine. I am going to meet people. So I grabbed one of the pamphlets, and uh, the title of that particular pamphlet was, we was Peace Above the Storm. Um, and I started walking around. Everyone else is sitting down, so it's just me by myself. And I remember trying to give it to like a guy in a business suit, and he very rudely like said no. And I was shocked. I was like, well then. But because of that, because of that situation, I still had this pamphlet that said, Peace Above the Storm in my hand. And I very, very, very awkwardly turned to the person that was just like sitting down on a ledge and handed it to her. And she, I didn't say anything, I just like gave it to her. And she looked at me and started screaming, you're the sign, you're the sign. And I'm like, oh, am I? <laughs> like, what does that mean? And uh, she proceeded to tell me. So 
we, again, the area we were, where we were, we were across from some courthouses, and she was there because she could not afford, like, electricity. She then pointed to her daughter, which, for whatever, uh, I guess, I think, if I remember correctly, she had lupus, but um, because she didn't have good health care, there were just scars, like burn marks, and just all of these things over her daughter. And she looked at me and said that I'm the sign, because she told me that that night, if God didn't give her a sign that he was alive, that he was good, she was going to go home and take her life and the life of her daughter. This happened, I think I was probably like 18, so, you know, two years ago. Um, <laughs> this happened when I was really, really young. And I've, this, this story has always, like, stood out in my mind. One, because I didn't necessarily, like, at that time, like, I don't know that I had the relationship with God enough to, to say that I felt impressed to go. I just got up because I wanted to talk to people. Two, it wouldn't have happened if that guy didn't, like, very rudely say no to me. And three, I'm always moved by the timing of this because me getting up, going, giving the pamphlet to the lady, talking to her for her to explain why I'm the sign happened within a matter of like 30 to 45 seconds before her cab came and she left. The thing that sticks out to me is had I not gone, right, what would have happened? Would she really have ended her life that night? I don't know. I'm not God. But as I grow older, I realize just how often in our lives we get to those places and those points where we are desperately looking for God. Those places and those points where we are burdened with pain. There are definitely seasons where things are beautiful, like, you know, weddings and graduations. But there are also seasons of great pain, seasons of loss, seasons of desperation. And in those seasons, where do we find God? Or who is this God that we are supposed to be worshiping? Today, we are wrapping up the series uh, about Revelation. And if you've ever come when I like, taught Sabbath school, you know that I'm likely to not stay on topic. But, but it all makes sense in the end. And so today, we are wrapping up Revelation. We've been going through these series. And the title of tonight's sermon is Between the Two Gardens. And I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I'm... I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak. I don't know everyone here. I don't know what they walked in carrying, but I do know that you're good. And as we explore your word, God, I pray that everyone or someone will walk away being able to see you in a new perspective, being able to love you deeper and understand you more. Thank you for just being a gracious God. Uh, bless us tonight and help this message to be clear and meaningful to those who need it. Thank you for your love. I pray in your name. Amen. So between the two gardens, um, I, by career, like right now, I'm an investigative journalist, so I do journalism. Um, my objective, though, eventually is to go back and uh, do therapy. But for now, I'm a writer. I, I suppose I'll always be a writer. But when I read the Bible, I now read it through the lens, or I read it through the lens of an author, right? Because when you look at the Bible, there are several things you see. First, the Bible itself is a holistic story. From Genesis to Revelation is a story of redemption. It's a story of God's love for us. But in the midst of the Bible, each chapter, there are different, or not each chapter, but 
a lot of the books of the Bible have different authors. And each author, they have like different literary devices. Like Paul, he uses a lot of metaphors. And David, he was a very emotional guy. And so as I study the Bible, something I love to do is to understand like why this specific author chose this specific word. And in general, there are several realizations. Like as we traverse the Bible tonight, there are several realizations that this message hinges on that I'm excited to share with you. I'm going to share the first three, again, as an author. Um, to understand a story, right? Like if you are, if you read a book, if you understand the story, then you understand the author, right? But to understand a story, you have to understand the ending. Like, why did it end this way? And to understand the end of a story is to understand the heart and the objective of the author, right? Again, like if someone writes a novel and like it ends with, and they live happily ever after, then you know their message. The thing they wanted to get to the reader is that there is beauty and joy in the way the story ends. So if you understand a story, if you read a book and you get it, you get a part of the author. If you understand the way the story ends, then you understand the author's objective, why they felt the need to put this message out there. But to understand the end of a story, you have to understand the beginning. So there will be a lot of like logical or like a series of like thought progressions that make this, uh, that will make this sermon, I think, meaningful. And for what it's worth, these are the thoughts I've had over like the last six months pertaining to the goodness of God. So again, it's going to make sense eventually, but for now, just stay with me. The key thing that I need you to like ruminate on for now is to understand a story is to understand the author. To understand the ending of a story is to understand the heart and objective of the author. To understand the end of a story, you have to understand the beginning. So again, today we're looking at Revelation, the last two chapters of the Bible, the end of a story. And as I was reading Revelation, there was a theme that just kept on jumping out to me. And so I'm going to, you can read along with me. We're looking at Revelation 21, and we're starting with verse 1. You don't physically have to read. I can read, and you guys can listen. Uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I'm going to bounce over around. Verse 2, um, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the operative words here are new heaven, new earth, bride adorned. And then we continue in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them. Again, dwell among them. They shall be my people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will, be, there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. I started looking at Revelation, which, for what it's worth, Revelation is very confusing. Like, I've been Adventist my entire life, and I'm still like, what is this talking about? And growing up, we used to have to go to, like, all of these seminars. It is admittedly a difficult book to contend with. But I think there's so much beauty to be found in it. So some of the words that we're looking at here is, he dwelled among them. God himself will be among them. You see words of proximity. You see words of newness, of restoration, of life. And it continues in verse 5. 
again, behold, the green, the, the highlighted part, behold, I am making all things new. I will give water to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. As I read Revelations, I realized the tone of these last two chapters was exceedingly, like, beautiful. There was so much goodness in it. The tone of the, like, Revelation 21 is restoration. He's making all things new. He's wiping every tear from our eyes. This just feels so, like, warm and fuzzy, which, again, compared to the rest of Revelations, where there's just so much, like, beast with seven head and pouring out the wine of wrath, to get to the end of this book and see that it's about goodness it's so refreshing and so beautiful. And as I studied this a few months ago, I realized that I was falling in love with these last two chapters because I saw the goodness of God in it. And then we go to chapter 22, and it's the same thing. Uh, the leaves will be, the, and the leaves of the tree were there for the healing of the nations because the Lord God will illuminate them. There's no need for night because God will be light. And in these two chapters, it painted this really beautiful picture of the character and heart of God. Because again, remember we said, to understand the ending of a story is to understand the heart and objective of the author. And this is how God chose to end not just the Bible, but really all of Earth's history. It ends with newness. It ends with restoration. It ends with him recreating that which was lost. It ends with him being proximate. It ends with kindness and compassion. And so I fell in love with Revelation. But then, remember I also said, to understand the end of a story, you have to understand the beginning. In Revelation 21, he says, behold, I'm making all things new. And I asked myself, why exactly did he need to make all things new? And of course we know, you know, like Adam and Eve, they sinned. But I felt that there was more there. And so as I studied Revelation 21 and 22, and the overall picture I saw was the goodness of God, I realized that I wanted to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. And in, the, in Genesis 1 and 2, we know this to be the creation story, right? And a similar thing started to jump out at me. God saw that the light was good. And again, this isn't, these aren't all the verses in Genesis, just the places where the word good shows up. And God called the dry land earth, and he saw that it was good. And the earth produced vegetation, and he saw that it was good. And if you go through Genesis 1 and 2, if you go through the, the creation narrative, there are seven times that God mentions or the word good is used. And if we think seven is the number of perfection, creation wasn't just good, it was perfect good. And so again, I'm like, here goes this strong tone of God's goodness in the beginning and in the end, right? And so we, we keep going. And then in Genesis 2, again, we see that he blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it. And he said, and, and everything was pleasing and good in the sight of God. And the only time in Genesis 1 and 2 something is not good is when man was alone. And for what it's worth, before you are like, oh, I need to get booed up, that's not specifically just about, like, finding a romantic partner. It's actually about community. When you think about it, we were always created as an us. God said, let us make man in our image. We are not intended to be alone. But if, if, you, if you say that, like, 
it's not good to be alone means like it's not good to be single, then you also entertain the idea that none of life is good, unto, is, is good until you're married. And that doesn't make sense. So it's not just about finding your partner, which I mean, I hope we all do, unless singleness is your thing. But like, it's more so about finding your community. We were created as from a unit. So within our heart is unity and community. And so the only place in Genesis 1 and 2 where something is not good is, is when it's not good for human to be alone. Also, if you're the type of person that like values information, I think it's, I challenge you to read the, the, the creation narrative in the Torah. So go back to the original Hebrew language because there are some words we've been taught, uh, for example, you know, like helper or help me, that like the, the word is very different in the Hebrew language and it just adds beauty to the story. It adds beauty to the story. So when God saw that something was not good, what he did is he fixed it. He said, it's not good for man to be alone, so he created woman. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. And so I fell in love with Revelation. Like, oh my goodness, Revelation 21 and 22, the ending of time, the ending of the Bible is goodness. And Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning of the Bible is goodness. And then I came to a realization there are two places in the Bible that you, like human beings, we get a glimpse of God outside of sin, right? Because Revelation 21 and 22 is after sin has been eradicated. Genesis 1 and 2 is before sin entered into the world. And so I came to this conclusion that if God is good in Genesis 1 and 2, before sin, and God is good in Revelations 21 and 22, doesn't that just mean God has been good all along? Like there is a consistency in his nature. Like he was good when it began. He was good when it ends. That means he's good to me now. That is one of the first realizations that like I came to uh, maybe a few months ago. Like, man, I love Revelation 21 and 22 because although I don't understand much of Revelation, I somehow can see that in all of this, there is the goodness of God. And I find that to be absolutely beautiful. And this goodness of God, it's, it's corroborated by the Bible. Um, uh, because it's, it's not just that God is good, but God is consistently good. In Malachi 3.6, it says that God does not change. So if God is good in the beginning, and Malachi is telling me God doesn't change, it supports the narrative that he's been good and he is good through and through. And Hebrews 13, 8, it says, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Again, he's the same. He has not changed. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James 1, 17, again supporting this idea that if God was good in Genesis and God is good in Revelation, God is just good. But then it lends to this question. If God is so good, why is there evil, right? Like, why, why are we suffering? I know I was talking to someone today who was speaking about loss and, or going through a breakup, and one of my best friends is having, like, the hardest time in life right now. If God is so good, then why is there so much pain? And why is there suffering? Uh, and I realize, again, we're looking at this as, like, a holistic narrative, right? But... If God is good, why is there evil? The answer to that is because while God is the author of this story, he is not the only character. And sin introduced into this world a formidable antagonist. 
AKA the devil, I can't stand him. There is a quote by C.S. Lewis in uh, the book Screwtape Letters, which is a book that's dedicated to his best friend J.R.R. Tolkien, which is like Lord of the Rings. Um, and the quote says, it's funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. When sin entered into the world, sin by nature is like separation. And we see this in Isaiah 59 too. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden your face from you, so that he will not hear you, I think is supposed to be there. Sin by nature is separation. When sin entered into the world, it's not that God's character changed. It's that our perception of his character changed. We are less able to discern his goodness because sin stands as a veil. It stands as a hindrance in our way. Again, God is good in Genesis. When he has control, he's back to being good in Revelation. So maybe it's just that he's good and I just can't tell because of the circumstances of life. I also, in the process of like concluding that God is good in the beginning and he's good in the end, I realize that if God is consistent and he is consistent, there's another person that's terribly consistent in all of this. Who the devil was at the beginning of time is who he will be until time runs out. The devil also doesn't change his modus operandi. And why is this significant? Because here we are, after the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, and we're not quite at the place where God restores everything and creates the new garden. We are here between the two gardens. We are here where sin dominates the world. And the ruler of this world, in the sense that God is still the ultimate ruler, but the person who has a great influence on this world is the devil himself. And so it makes sense to understand our enemy if we ever want to have victory, if we want to make it back to that second garden, if we want to get to that place where God restores everything and makes all things new, it's important to understand our enemy. So this year I read The Art of War, and I really liked it because, I mean, it's, it's a book about war, but I found it so beautiful and it had so many spiritual implications. One of the quotes from The Art of War is, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. I'm so glad that you've been listening to the first part of the sermon. This sort of production does require some financial cost. If you'd like to reach more young adults with this across the world, would you consider giving at praxisministry.org? You can select the Praxis Young Adult Envelope. Enjoy the rest of the sermon. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb to every battle. And I feel like that pertains to the spiritual warfare to the T. It's not just about knowing myself. It's not just about knowing God. It's also understanding the enemy of our soul. Because while God is good, and he speaks in the language of abundance and grace and mercy, the enemy of our soul wants to see us destroyed. He wants to see us forfeit our place in God's kingdom. Another quote that I really love is, all warfare is based on deception. 
And I feel like that's powerful because that's exactly what the devil did. And so once I realized God is good in Revelation 21 and 22, where sin is no longer in the world. God is good in Genesis 1 and 2, before sin entered. Sin is now in the, fa- like in the equation. How do I then honor and live a life where I can still trust the goodness of God? I realized that I wanted to go back to Genesis and look at where and how the devil tempted Adam and Eve. Because my logic behind that is, if he's consistent, if he's going to be the same throughout time, the way the devil tempts Adam and Eve is the exact way he'll tempt me. And so to understand how the devil moves is to safeguard against his temptations. And so let's, we're going back to Genesis. We're in Genesis again, and we're just going to dive into some of the ways the devil tempted the first humans. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God really said you shall not eat from any of the tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And here comes the devil. He's so irritating. The serpent said to the woman, you will not certainly die. He's such a troll. Like, what? You will not certainly die, for God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here comes the first temptation. First of all, you will not certainly die. He directly calls God a liar. Like, he attacks his character. Because if God said you're going to die, and the devil's like, no, you're not. Someone's a liar here. And the devil is making it so that it's God. The second thing is he accused God of withholding something good, which logically doesn't make sense. I'm not quite sure what evil is going through, but if God created everything for them, why would he withhold something good from them? But I don't know. I guess Eve felt like he did. So he accused God of withholding good things from her. He challenged her identity and suggested she needed to work to be like God. In the sentence, you will become like God, the transitive nature of that statement is you are not currently like God. And you need to eat of this fruit that that God is withholding from you to be like God. So in modern time, in our life today, it's the same exact way. God, the devil is consistently attacking God's character. He's consistently convincing us that God is withholding something good from us. And he's always challenging our identity, making it so we feel like we have to, we're not enough and we have to do something, be it, I don't know, become a doctor or get a million dollars or find a partner or get plastic surgery or whatever the world tells us that we have to do that to be considered as enough. We continue, when the woman saw that the tree was for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her and he ate. The emojis are not biblical. (laughs) But I will say though, (laughs) of all the times in earth's history to be an inconsiderate wife, this should have been it. Like, Eve should have just gone and, like, eaten that fruit under a tree. And I suspect, like, God would have just made Eve 2.0. I don't know. But I guess sin hadn't, like, kicked in enough, and Eve wanted to be considerate. And so here we are today. Eve took it and gave it to her husband, 
And as a result, sin entered into the world. And we continue. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist covering. Now they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The devil, he will plant his, his temptations, his actions will leave you with such a deep sense of shame. You are inclined to hide. I don't know if you guys have heard of Brene Brown, but she does a lot of research on shame. And she talks about how the opposite of shame is not like, the opposite of shame is vulnerability. It's being able to be open, to speak out the thing that tells you that you are not enough. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is I have done something wrong. Shame is I am something wrong. And it leads to this desire to hide. And so when sin entered into the world, Adam and Eve now felt shamed. Before they were naked and they were just chilling. They were fine. But now they are naked and they are inclined to sew together something to hide themselves. That is the work of the devil. Then the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And God kind of dialogues with him like, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit? Sin causes a fear of God. Not like the fear of God where it's like a reverence, but we are afraid of who God is. We are afraid to be in the presence of God because we are now convinced that something about us is so wrong that being in God's presence will be a bad or poor experience. That is the byproduct of sin. And the, we continue. The woman who you gave me. Oh, no. the man. Oh, so now they start arguing. So God's like, what happened? What's up? And the man's like, the woman you gave me. And then she says, no, it was the serpent that deceived me. With sin in the world, we now have a skewed perception of God's gifts. Before, I'm sure Adam was really happy for Eve. After, suddenly, she's the problem, which technically, <laughs> you gotta. <laughs> and also here, we see variance. We see them fighting. The community starts breaking down, and now there is blame shifting to, to get rid of guilt. We establish that who the devil was at the beginning of time is who he will be until there is no time. And so the devil will always, in our modern lives, he will always call God a liar. He will always insinuate that God is not truthful and his intentions towards us are not the best. The devil will always accuse God of withholding good things from us. He will always make it so whatever pain we feel, be it heartbreak, financial struggle, any struggle of any sort, doesn't speak to the nature of the devil who is the author of all of this confusion. He makes it so it speaks to the heart of God. The devil will always challenge our identity. Oh, there's a slide. I just want them to see it. Thank you. The devil will always challenge our identity and suggest that, as he did with Eve, that she needed to work to be like God. When I look, as I grow older, um, not that old though, but like as I grow older, <laughs> I realize just how many of us are walking around with skewed identity of ourselves and how damaging that is. Like I, I think about 
for example, again, relationship is at the heart of God. It's who we were meant to be. I think about the times that I've had rifts in relationship with people who are amazing, no less, beautiful people. And a lot of it came from my own insecurities. It came from the time and the places where I lost sight of who God intended for me to be. That is a tactic of the devil. To believe that God is a liar makes me challenge the entire word of God. Every promise in the Bible, if God is a liar, they cannot be trusted. And so now going through trials, when I'm looking at the Bible, I don't believe it because I don't know that I believe God is telling the truth. Or to believe that God is withholding good. It means every time I'm struggling, I could be like, see God, I knew you never wanted good for me in the first place. But this is all absolutely a tactic of the devil. And as a result of sin in the world, it leads to shame. It leads to isolation. It leads to fear that urges us to run. It leads to an inability to conceptualize the goodness of God. There are times when things don't feel good, but they're leading to good, and we're unable to hold on because we, no long, we do not trust that God is good, that God is good to us, and that God is good at being God. It, le- it leads us to search for I- our identity in places and people that can never fill us. And it leads to broken community and broken relationships. This, these are all the works of the devil. And why I think I bring this out and why I highlight this is because, again, we're not in the place where everything is restored. We are stuck between these two gardens where sin is ever prevalent. And the more I started being able to see the tactics of the devil, the more I could resist him, the more I could hold on to this overt and this consistent goodness of God. The ultimate tactic of the devil was not what he did. It's not just that he got Eve and Adam to eat of the fruit. It's what he convinced human beings to believe about the character of God. That's where he got us. And that's what he continues to do now. Because again, there's this book called The God-Shaped Heart, and there's also one called The God-Shaped Mind. And the whole premise of the book is what we believe about God affects the way we live our lives. Like, I'm actually convinced a lot of us are in toxic relationships with God. This is what I mean. If I had a partner and I, like, the things I believed about God, I believed about my partner, there should be no reason I'm dating this person. If I'm like, man, I don't know if my partner is good. I feel like he's punitive. I can't make a mistake or I'm going to get judged. If If I'm like, oh, God, he's just looking for me to mess up. If I were saying that to, like, one of my best friends about my, like, partner, they'd be like, girl, you need to leave him (laughs) immediately. But here we are believing these really skewed things about God and still trying to serve him. That's literally a cognitive dissonance. That doesn't make sense. How can you trust the person you are afraid of? And I think, again, that is the tactic of the enemy to convince us that God is not good, that he's not kind, that he doesn't desire to lavish us with grace. And, and he convinces us in the deepest parts of our souls. Because he has rain or he has, like, he's on this earth, he can plant situations that break our hearts. And then we take our broken heart and we say, God did this. God allowed this. Instead of looking at the person who really is the author of this confusion. 
what you believe affects your life. I remember, I think it, last year we went to a wedding in Hawaii. It was one of our friends' wedding. And we went to a church there. And there are many things that they said. But I think something that one of the people said is, change your mind, change your life. And that really stood out to me, especially as someone who now is really passionate about mental health. Or I, I've always been passionate about mental health. If you change the way you think about God, I, I really believe that it changes your outlook on life entirely. And the reason I say this is that I actually used to super struggle with anxiety, specifically when I moved to Loma Linda, because before that I was fine. <laughs> um, like just bad, like crippling anxiety. Again, I told you I was more of an extrovert. I don't know where social anxiety came from, but I had that bad. Um, like I would need to retreat for extended periods after hanging out with people. And one day I realized, like, with a lot of my friends, the people that I love, like, the way I think about them, I think about them as, like, the, this person, okay, like, let's take Gabby or Lisa. This person is so good. Like, they're so amazing. The language I use would be, like, oh, I love them so much. They would never do anything to hurt me. And I realized I did not think about God that way. That just wasn't the way I described God. I, if I said God was good, it was intellectual. It was because it's what I've read in the Bible. But I didn't feel that in my core. I wouldn't defend God's goodness with my life the way I would the people I love. And then one day I was like, man, why is that? How, how in the world do I think my friends are good and God is not? And when that shifted, when I started to be like, no, I actually, I think I prayed. I was like, God, I want to feel your goodness the way I feel the goodness of, like, towards my friends. And God, over time, changed my heart. So now when something bad happens, I'm not, I don't jump to like, God, why did you do this? I now can say, God, you will get me through this. Or God, I know that you have my best interest at heart. And it has shifted so much of my life. I still cry every day. <laughs> but not because I'm sad, because I'm moved by beautiful things in life. Like those little videos of like dads coming home from war. Like those bring me to tears. So not like real tears, but like happy tears. And I'm not bogged down with like the worst beliefs about myself. I'm not weighed down with those anymore. And it started with me repeating this, God is good. God is good to me. God is good at being God. And I would repeat that over and over. God is good. God is good to me. God is good at being God. And again, just to reiterate this idea, we are in between the two gardens and sin is prevalent in our world. I don't want to over-spiritualize mental health. I think that's a disservice. I don't want to sit here and pretend like tough things don't happen. That's also a disservice. But I want to say that they're not mutually exclusive. Bad things can happen and God can still be good. That's one of the conclusions I've come to within my more recent years. And the Bible supports this. There are verses that tell us, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. He withholds no good thing from us. No good thing from those who walk with integrity. Psalms 84:11. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change or shift in sh um, shadows. We read that earlier, James 1:17. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up over for all of us, how will he not also freely give us all things? And because we're technically talking about revelation 
and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will, be, there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things are, for, are passed away. I, I really like enjoyed this. And I feel like this, it's funny because um, there are times I think when I'm speaking and I'm like really hype and passionate. I feel like for me this is a little bit different simply because it, it was just such a resolution. It was like years of praying to understand God that resolved in this just really steady understanding that God is good. It wasn't something extra. It wasn't something grandiose. It was just something like deeply authentic. And I, can, I see in my life since like just deciding to believe in the goodness of God, I see how God is working on me to be a better version of myself. I see how God is pushing me more into my calling. Like I, for the longest, it, I've been told, oh, be a pastor, and I'm like, strong, ne- immediately, no. Um, or do this, do that, no. And I, I'm, I don't think of myself as a late bloomer, but I, I just think I'm like a different flower. So, you know, we all bloom in different <laughs> seasons. But like a lot of my peers that I went to undergrad with, they're all physicians now. They're all like act, like attendings. And it's tough to be in a place where I'm like, what am I supposed to do with my life? But I've realized that in the process of like, being a different flower that blooms in a different season, one of the gifts I have been able to have is like a certainty of God's goodness. And, and, and I feel like that just, it, I wake up, no joke, not to be like cheesy, I wake up and I'm like, man, I'm, it's amazing to be alive. <laughs> like I get to be me today. And, I, and, and the people that are in my life, I find, I love, I'm able to love them more because I'm not afraid of them not loving me as much. And I find healing in the broken parts of my life. And I want also to, you to know, like if you knew some of my personal story, Like, I'm not just up here saying God is good and everything has been fine. Like, if I could only tell you all of the things I've gone through, if I could tell you about being homeless, sleeping on floors, only eating because I had friends in college, if I could tell you about how my dad is diabetic, he's on dialysis, and had cancer all at the same time. And those are just, like, two small parts of my story. But I don't have to tell you this because I look at some of you and I know that if we were to sit down and have a conversation, some parts of your story would shatter me. It would break me. I would cry, not happy tears. These would be the sad ones. I would look at you and wish I could take the pain away. And so when I stand up here and say God is good, I don't want you to think like, oh, Ezrika is an elder. She knows God. No. I've had to fight. I've had to fight for this realization as I'm sure you've had to fight as well. Again, sin veils God's goodness from all of us. And the band can come up. Sin veils God's goodness. (laughs) That's my bad. I didn't give them a cue. Sin veils God's goodness from all of us. I don't know, in physics, I don't know if you guys have heard of the Doppler effect. Like, where you hear a siren, and as they get further, the frequency changes. That's what sin did to us. Astronaut, astronaut also experienced this, the red shift as they like get further away from the earth. Like there's a shift in the light. Their vision is obscured. Their, our hearing is impeded. That is what sin does. Sin makes it so hard to see the goodness of God. But I find it so beautiful again that we actually know how this story ends. We know exactly how this story ends. It ends with God restoring everything. 
to, to, the, to the way that he intended for it to be. But for now, perhaps you are experiencing great loss. Perhaps your heart is breaking. You're uncertain about what your future holds. You've lost a loved one. You are confused. You are broken. I want to leave you with a quote and a question. My friend uh, Hazel and I, one of my best friends, we were talking, and she's a surgery resident in May at Mayo Clinic. And uh, I think med school is tough, residency is tough, um, life is tough, and so it's a harder season for her. And so we were talking about one of the things her therapist said. And I found it to be so beautiful. I was like, oh, Hazel, I'm putting that in my sermon when she said it, like yesterday. Um, not that I was working on this yesterday or anything. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> One of the things she said, the therapist was reminding her of her worth. He said to her, you were worth the death of God. And I was like, oh, that's fierce. That's powerful. And so we were just talking about it like, Hazel, it's true. When Christ came to earth, much like he did in the Garden of Eden, where he's like, it's not good for man to be alone. So he created life. When he saw that sin entered into the world, he said, it's not good for my people to be in sin. So he gave his life. But there was no guarantee that he was going to be successful. When Christ entered earth, there was no promise that he was going to defeat hell in the grave. And if Christ failed, the Godhead that we know, the Trinity, would not exist. A part of them would forever be lost. They took that. They factored that into the equation and said, it is worth God dying. To potentially save them it makes me think again of the verse if God gave his son why would he not give us all things freely why would he withhold like what does he benefit from withholding good from us and if the in the final thing in the last chapter if like God's final thing in earth's history is to erase the sin and create something new and restore the beauty. In fact, it's probably more beautiful than the Garden of Eden. If he desires to do that, why would he be mean to us now? Why would he, why is, why would he be a punitive God? Why would he be someone that like, is out for our destruction? That just doesn't line up. And so I ruminated on this reality that God looked at Ezrika and said, Ezrika is worth the end, the death of God. And to me, I'm just like, if you love me that much, the least I can do is choose to believe that you're good. Another quote from The Art of War, victorious warriors win first and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first and then seek to win. The way that we win first is by holding to the truth of God's goodness is by holding to the truth that he already has the victory. I, I think I said it. I think I said my dad is blind. I, I don't know if I added that into the, okay, I didn't say it. Gabby said I didn't say it. So on top of the cancer and dialysis, he's also blind. He went blind 10 years ago this year. And I was talking to him last week, and um, uh, he was telling me, he's like, Zriki, no one called me that ever. <laughs> but he like, Zriki, uh, my one-year cancer um, like appointment came up, and everything is still clear. Everything is still clean. And he was just talking about, you know, how hard it's been for him to be blind. And at the end, my dad is like, but I'm still hoping that I get my sight back. 
And in my mind, I'm like, don't. Because, like, it breaks my heart to know that he's holding on to hope. But then God is like, how is that a bad thing? How is it a bad thing to believe in the goodness of God, in the possibilities of God? And so I don't know what it is that breaks your heart today. I don't know what it is that causes you to go home and cry, to put on a good face in front of everyone. But I want to challenge you with this very, this reality. And I want to challenge you to go back and study it for yourself. Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning, God was good. Revelation 1 and 2, the end, God will be good. Is it possible that God is just good to you now? And what changes in your life if you actually, like not like churchly, not like the Christian thing to do, but like if deep in the crevices of your soul, you actually, genuinely, authentically believed that God was just good. And because he is good, irrespective of what situation you're going through, he has good for you. He is not withholding it from you. And to the extent that he would rather die than have you stay in suffering. What changes in our lives if we believe that? And that's the message I have for today. That is why I think Revelation 21 and 22, probably two of the most beautiful books, chapters in the Bible. Because they, they remind me that the way the story ends is the way the story began with the goodness of God. And that goodness of God is for you too. Hey, I'm so glad that you listened to the Night Church podcast sermon today. I know that God is going to do great things in your life. Whatever you felt and heard from the Lord through this sermon, I hope that you would share this with someone that you love and care about and that you would consider even joining us one Friday evening. Blessings to you and hope you get to listen to the next one coming up soon.